Welcome to The History of the Christian Church, Season 1, with Lance Rolston. In this episode, we'll take a look at English Puritanism. In episode 96, which we titled English Candles, we considered the arrival of the Reformation in England and the career of Thomas Cranmer, Archbishop of the Anglican Church. When Catholic Queen Mary ascended the throne, she persecuted Protestants. But when Elizabeth became queen, a new day dawned for the Reformation there. Queen Elizabeth followed a median course between religious conservatives, who sought to retain as much of the ancient practices and beliefs as possible, and reformers who believed the entire life and structure of the church ought to be adjusted to what they saw as a biblical norm. During Elizabeth's reign, that delicate balance was maintained, though tensions surfaced repeatedly. Her strength and decisiveness managed to restrain both sides. Barely. Elizabeth left no heir when she died in 1603, but she'd made arrangements for the succession to pass to James, the son of Mary Stuart, already serving as the King of Scotland. The transition was fairly smooth, bringing the House of Stuart to reign over England. James VI of Scotland became James I of England. He didn't find ruling his expanded realm an easy matter. The English regarded him a foreigner. His plan to unite both kingdoms earned him determined opponents on both sides. Elizabeth's reforms of England's economic policies were now bearing fruit, especially among the growing merchant class who resented James's royalist policies favoring the nobility. But James's greatest troubles were with reformers who wanted to see the English church purged of all Romanish influences. They regarded James as standing in the way of that. His native Scotland had moved further along the Reformation Road under the work of John Knox. English Calvinists felt the time was ripe for similar changes in their land. These reformers didn't comprise a single group, nor did they agree on all matters. So it's difficult describing them in general terms. One of the most influential groups was given the name Puritans because they insisted on the need to purify the church. They opposed many of the traditional aspects of worship the Church of England retained, Things like the use of the cross as a symbol, priestly garments, and the celebration of communion on an altar. They differed over whether there even ought to be an altar. Wasn't a simple table good enough? And if a table, should it be placed so as not to give anyone the idea that it was an altar? Things like this led to bitter disputes. They may have left behind the scholastic argument of how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, but they argued now over less inconsequential issues as how much lace ought to be in their collars. Puritans insisted on the need for a sober life, guided by the commands of Scripture and abstinence from luxury and ostentatious displays of wealth. Since a great deal of the worship of the Church of England appeared to them as needlessly elaborate, this caused further objection to such worship. Many insisted on the need to keep the Lord's Day sacred, devoting it exclusively to religious exercises and charity. They also rejected the Anglican Book of Common Prayer and the use of written prayers in general, declaring that such led to insincerity, so that even the Lord's Prayer, rather than a set of words to be repeated, was only to be used as a model for prayer. They weren't opposed to the use of alcohol, for most of them drank moderately, but they were quite critical of any kind of drunkenness. They were also critical of all they considered licentious, things like the theater, because immorality was often depicted and because of the inherent duplicity that was required in acting. They considered it a kind of lying because someone pretended to be someone else. This tone of supercritical Puritanism would much later move H.L. Mencken to describe Puritanism as, quote, 
the haunting fear that someone, somewhere, may be having a good time, unquote. A precise definition of Puritanism has been a matter of much debate, due in part to its multifaceted influence in not only religious and theological matters, but in its impact on England's politics and society. Some of the difficulty in defining Puritanism comes from its caricatures that began in the 16th century. As with so many of the labels that have been attributed to movements in the church, the word Puritan was originally a slam applied by its critics. They considered Puritans to be peevish, censorious, conceited hypocrites. That reputation, once applied, stuck to them all the way to our own time. In truth, there was a surprising diversity among Puritans. They shared a common theological confession while differing on how the church ought to be organized. Some Puritans thought the existing Anglican hierarchy of bishops was fine, while others wanted to restructure the church along more Presbyterian lines. Still others embraced a congregational form of church government. Some advocated separation from the established church, while others wanted to remain. Some were royalist, others revolutionary, even to the point of regicide. While Puritans differed in worship styles and the expressions of their piety, they all wanted the English church to more closely resemble the Reformed churches on the continent. Many Puritans were opposed to bishops. They argued that the highly structured church hierarchy of the Church of England was a late invention not found in the Bible. They said the church ought to look to scripture as its constitution, not only for doctrine, but also in its organization and governance. Moderate Puritans responded that the Bible didn't actually give a prescription for a specific form of church government. What it had were principles that could be applied in different ways. Others insisted that the New Testament church was ruled by elders, called presbyters. Then others claimed that each congregation ought to be independent. They were creatively dubbed the independents. Baptists rose mostly among this last group. One of their early leaders was John Smythe, an Anglican priest who decided that the Church of England had not reformed far enough. He established an independent, and at that time illegal, congregation. As it grew, Smythe and his followers fled to Amsterdam. There, he continued his study of the Bible and came to the point of refusing to use translations of the Bible in worship, for only the original text had absolute authority. At church, he would read scripture in Hebrew and Greek and then translate the text as he preached. Partly through his study of scripture and partly through contact with the Mennonites, whose pacifism and refusal to take oaths he adopted, eventually he became convinced that infant baptism was wrong. He then rebaptized himself with a bucket and a ladle and proceeded to baptize his followers. The move of Smythe and his flock to Holland was financed by a wealthy lawyer named Thomas Helwys who eventually broke with the ever-reforming Smythe. The breaking point of contention was over the taking of vows. Smythe rejected any form of vow, while as a lawyer, Helwys considered them a necessary convention safeguarding social order. Helwys and his followers returned to England, where in 1611 they founded the first Baptist church in England. Eventually, and to really no one's surprise, a disagreement arose among English Baptists over theological issues similar to those that had risen between Calvinists and Arminianists. Those who favored the Arminian-flavored path were called General Baptists, while Calvinist-leaning Baptists were referred to as Particular Baptists. The balance that Elizabeth maintained in the Church of England began to wobble under James. While its theology was moderately Calvinist, its worship and governance followed the older Roman form. Puritans feared that a movement was underway to return to what they called Romanism. They didn't trust the new king, whose mother was none other than the Catholic Mary Stuart, 
also known as Mary, Queen of Scots, who had been executed by Elizabeth on the charge of treason in plotting to assassinate Elizabeth and take her throne. James didn't, in fact, favor Catholicism, though Puritans assumed that he would and hoped to gain concessions from him. They were repeatedly disappointed. James's goal was the same kind of absolutist monarchy then in place in France. In Scotland, his Presbyterian subjects hadn't allowed him to reign as he wished. He thought his chances for absolutism were better in the South, and to that end, he strengthened the bishops of the English church as a prop to his own power. He declared, quote, without bishops there is no king, unquote, meaning, meaning that monarchy is better supported by a hierarchical church structure. James's religious policy was similar to Elizabeth's. The Anabaptists were persecuted because James was offended by their egalitarianism that threatened to upend the highly stratified English society. For goodness sake, we can't have peasants thinking they're as important as nobles. What a catastrophe if humble commoners mixed with blue bloods. So the Anabaptists, with their calling everyone brother and sister, well, they had to be repressed. They were, brutally. And Catholics, who thought that James would be their guy, were regarded by him as agents of the Pope, who everyone knew wanted to get rid of James. James said that if the Pope acknowledged his right to rule and condemned regicide, which a few of the more extreme Catholics were pushing for, James would tolerate the presence of Catholics in his realm. Presbyterians, whom the king had come to hate in Scotland, were barely tolerated in England. James did grant them minor concessions, but only to keep them from making trouble. Tensions between Anglican bishops and Puritans grew to a boil during James's reign. In 1604, Richard Bancroft, Archbishop of Canterbury, had a series of canons approved that were offensive to the Puritans. One affirmed that Episcopal hierarchy was an institution of divine origin, and without it, there could be no true church. Well, that ostracized the many Protestant churches in Europe that had no bishops. Puritans saw it as provoking a showdown between themselves and the Church of England. Some assumed that it was all preparation by the Church of England to reunite with Rome. James called Parliament to sit for the approval of new taxes to complete some of England's projects. The House of Commons included many Puritans who joined others in an appeal to the king against Bancroft's canons. James convened a committee at Hampton Court to consider the canons, over which he presided. When one of the Puritans made reference to the church being governed by a presbytery, James announced that there could be no closer connection between the monarchy and a presbytery than there could be between God and the devil. All attempts at compromise ended at that point. The only result of the meeting was that a new translation of the Bible was approved. It appeared in 1611 and is known today as the King James Version. Produced at a high point in the development of the English language, Along with the Book of Common Prayer, the King James Bible became a classic that profoundly influenced later English literature. But this marks the beginning of a growing hostility between the House of Commons and the bishops of the Church of England. Late in 1605, what's known as the Gunpowder Plot was discovered. A repressive law against Catholics was issued the previous year on the pretext that they were loyal to the Pope rather than the King. The real purpose of the law was to collect funds, Authorities used it to impose heavy fines and confiscate property. Catholics came to the conclusion the solution was to get rid of the king. A property was rented whose cellars extended below the room where Parliament met. Several wine barrels were filled with gunpowder and set under the room. The plan was to detonate them as the king opened Parliament. This would rid England of James and many Puritan leaders. But the plot was discovered, the conspirators executed. 
This unleashed a rabid wave of anti-Catholic sentiment in England that saw many arrested and imprisoned. James used the whole affair as a way to levy even heavier fines on Catholics and confiscate even more property. After those first years of his reign, James tried to rule without Parliament. But English law stipulated that it alone could approve new taxes. So in 1614, when his finances were desperate, James relented and again convened Parliament. New elections brought in a House of Commons even more stubborn than the previous. So James dissolved it and again tried to rule without it. He turned to new tariffs that he could levy without Parliament's approval. He borrowed from bishops and the nobility. Then the Thirty Years' War broke out. Frederick, King of Bohemia, was James' son-in-law, but James offered no support. English Protestants named James a traitor, a coward. He replied that he wanted to help, but that the Puritans held the purse and the war was expensive. Finally, in 1621, James reconvened Parliament, hoping that the House of Commons would agree to new taxes with the proviso that some, at least, of the revenue would support German Protestants in the war. But it was discovered that James planned to marry his son and the heir to the English throne to a Spanish princess, a Catholic Habsburg. Such an alliance was regarded by Puritans as an abomination. And so James once again dissolved the House of Commons and arrested several of its leaders. The marriage plans were abandoned for other reasons, and in 1624 James once again called a meeting of Parliament, only to dissolve it anew without obtaining the funds that he required. Shortly thereafter, he died and was succeeded by his son, Charles, who had been a good student of his father's routine with Parliament. English Puritans welcomed Charles I to the throne with less enthusiasm than they had his father. Charles said that kings are, quote, little gods on earth, unquote. Puritans knew this didn't bode well for their future relations, nor did it help that Charles immediately married a Roman Catholic princess, Henrietta Marie de Bourbon raising the specter of a Catholic heir to the English throne. The relationship between the crown and the mostly Puritan parliament went from bad to worse. Puritan antagonism toward the king rose in 1633 when the king appointed William Laud as Archbishop of Canterbury. Laud embarked on a policy of high Anglicanism with a strong sacramentalism and a theological slant towards Arminianism that tweaked the Calvinist Puritans. In what proved his undoing, Charles tried to impose on the Scottish Church the Anglican Book of Common Prayer in 1637, which once got called, quote, the vomit of Romish superstition, unquote. When a marketplace grocer named Jenny Geddes heard the dean of St. Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh read from the new prayer book, she stood up, threw her stool at him, yelling, Devil curse your colic on your stomach, false thief, dare you say mass in my ear? Yep, them Scots. Peaceful lot they are, which I get to say because I are one. Jenny's reaction was a foretaste of a brewing rebellion. Riots broke out in Edinburgh, and in early 1638, the Scottish formalized their opposition to King Charles's innovation by establishing the National Covenant. Many signed it in their own blood, making it clear that they'd die before submitting to Laud's Anglicanism. Charles led two military campaigns known as the Bishops' Wars, from 1639 to 40, in an effort to quell the Scottish Rebellion. Both were turned back. The Scottish army then occupied northern England and threatened to march south. In November 1640, King Charles had to once again convene Parliament. Never had there been a body more hostile to the monarch. They immediately passed a law forbidding him to dissolve it without its consent. 
This came to be known as the Long Parliament since it stayed in session for 20 years. Archbishop Laud was charged with treason and imprisoned in the Tower of London. The conflict between King and Parliament reached a boiling point. Charles was convinced that Puritan members of Parliament had committed treason by conspiring with the Scots to invade England. Charles, accompanied by 400 soldiers, burst into the House of Commons in January of 1642, planning to arrest them. But the men had been warned and fled. This attack on Parliament by armed troops was an egregious violation of British rights. Charles realized his error and a few days later, fearing now for his own safety, fled London. We're going to pick it up at this point in our next episode. Thanks for joining us at Communio Sanctorum. We really appreciate your listening and subscribing. Listeners are invited to like the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page and to write a review in the iTunes store. For both Facebook and iTunes, search for History of the Christian Church. Looking forward to joining you next time.